This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This story, you've been hearing it on 900 CHML News, the Connolly Condo Tower Project um, on James Street uh, South is now uh, in receivership, throwing into doubt a a project that, that knocked down most of a historic Hamilton church, James Street Baptist Church, but left only rubble in its place. A notice posted on the chain link fence surrounding the site says that the premises are now under possession of the receiver and any uh, any unauthorized entry is prohibited. The project will now be sold off in a bidding process. The Connolly is about 75% sold, but it isn't yet clear exactly what will happen uh, with those units. And this is causing uh, a bit of... Uh, a bit of consternation among the people that live in the neighborhood. And joining me on the line to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to talk about it is Francis Murray of the Duran Neighborhood Association. Francis, thanks for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jamie. Okay, so we know that the Connolly Condo Tower is somewhat in limbo right now because uh, of this, um, uh, the developer going into receivership. Uh, first of all, just react to that news. Well, uh, we are very, very disappointed in this outcome, uh, although we're not surprised at the outcome either. Uh, we did know the, the history of this um, project developer, and uh, we were not hopeful um, that he would come through on this project. Yeah, you're referring to uh, Stanton Renaissance, which is the, the developing company uh, that, that demolished two-thirds of the historic James Street Baptist Church dating back to 1878 with an eye to building this 30-story Connolly Tower. That happened in 2014. Of course, Mm -hmm. nothing was ever built there, and people were driving by, and, you know, we drive by and we go, what's happening there? Well, I guess they're building a new condo tower. It says that on the poster, and then nothing nothing would be happening. And as you, right. point, you pointed out, Francis, this seems to be Stanton Renaissance's um, s- standard. This is what happens. They did it in Etobicoke with a on-the-go Mimico high-rise project, uh, only 15% yeah. complete when it went into receivership and, and others. The question, yeah. the question then is, why, you know, how are we not able to scrutinize these guys a little bit better um, Maybe it's not up. Maybe it's not up to our city council to do that. I don't know. Help me out. Educate me a bit here. I, like you say, I'm not sure of the process either for scrutinizing um, the developers. Uh, the property was sold um, to the new property owner, um, Stanton Re- Renaissance. And there is nothing the city can do about that. You know, it's a free market. The the sale has to go through. However, this was a designated property. So what happened from that point on was um, under the purview of the city. And um, unfortunately, from the way we see it, process was not followed in in the proper manner. And uh, some of the... Uh, roadblocks were smoothed for this for this owner, and this is what we end up with: is a pile of rubble and nothing being built. So, really, I mean, it, you know, it's easy to find uh, background information on just about anybody in the world today. It's not difficult to get information. It does make you wonder why um, people here 
who were in decision-making positions wouldn't have done that. Maybe they did. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, we're convinced that, no, despite the track record, this one's going to happen. You know, we don't know all of the details of that. But at the end of the, the day right now, is your concern that that's exactly what is going to be left there is just a pile of rubble and nothing will be developed around it and that facade will just stand there and and nothing will happen? Well, we're hopeful that uh, somebody will see the value in the property. It's, it's a great location. Uh, Definitely. Close to the GO station. Um, it's been rezoned. So the new, anybody who takes over that property will, will not have any hurdles in that regard. Um, so we're, we are hopeful that there is a future for the, at least the, the facade of that church. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a, a new owner could also apply to demolish that and possibly put a case forward for doing so. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Duran Neighborhood Association would fight that for sure. Why are, why are, um, old churches, old buildings, old facades, so important. For those that might be listening who would say, who cares? It's just an old building. It's an old church. It's an old pile of bricks. What you know? Time marches well, on. Progress just... goes on. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate here. What do you yeah, say no, to that? I, I get that. I understand that point of view. Um, but that kind of workmanship, that craftsmanship, we don't see that anymore. And it's it, it's a stone building. Um, people aren't building with stone anymore. Um, and so it just it makes the, the cityscape more interesting when there are older buildings mixed with newer buildings and mm-hmm. so that people can relate to their history, the history of the, the area. And it, it just makes for a better... Uh, street view, I think. I agree. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> al- I'm also. I'm. Oh, absolutely. I'm. I'm also hopeful um, that this project can be handed over to another developer, so to speak, and and see the development come to fruition. And the reason that I'm optimistic is because all around our downtown core, I see nothing but signs of good things and money coming in and other developments. And those include condominium developments like the Royal Connaught. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know the name of the other one that's at uh, Caroline in in Maine. Um, I think that's Maine something lofts or whatever. It's a, it's, it's, it's up and, and going. And now we're, and you we're also Mm -hmm. hearing about the, we're also hearing about the development of, um, Two condo towers at 163 Jackson Street West, which is the site current site of CHCH TV, um, yeah. and and developers going in there, and you know we've seen an increase of, in hotels, and we've got restaurant tours coming, and we've got an art scene. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, isn't there? I I believe there is. Yeah, I mean we've had um, condo developments go up within our neighborhood and you know the new residents are you know they add life to the neighborhood and it's a good thing bringing people downtown brings life to the downtown core so yeah and and how long have you lived in the duran neighborhood francis uh i've only been in the duran neighborhood six years okay because um 
I, I remember I, I lived in the Duran neighborhood uh, for a period of time uh, back in the uh, late 80s. And, oh, nice. And it was – but I have to tell you, it was – yeah, it was okay. But it has – I've watched it really blossom and develop and really grow uh, mm-hmm. in, in that period of time. I mean, that's a while ago. That's almost 20 years now. And you would hope mm-hmm. that that would happen. Um, and, and, and it has. That, that has become a really nice uh, neighborhood. And I can understand uh, why you guys would, would want to voice your concerns. And, and, and do, you get, you know, do you get the ear of the local politicians when you, when you call up? Are you able to get a sympathetic ear at City Hall? Yes. Yes, we do. We, we have a good relationship with um, Councillor Farr, and, um, uh, you know, we feel comfortable going to meetings at City Hall, writing to our councillors, uh, or all of the City Council and the Mayor, um, when we support a project or not support a project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the, the difference that you've noticed in the Duran neighbourhood is um, primarily due to young families moving in. Yeah, it looks um, that way. So they're they're moving in. They're they're really happy to live in an urban neighborhood, and they're fixing up their houses. And they they love our park. And yeah, that park yeah, was it, that, it brings life. That park was renovated a, a couple of years ago, right? That um, the one yeah. you see it as you drive along Herkimer between uh, Herkimer and uh, Charlton. I think it is, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and uh they've got Sobe bikes there, I think as well. Mm-hmm. My... We have a splash pad. Yeah, I mean that that when I think of um the days I when I lived on Herkimer in in 88, uh that park was there, but it was just there. It wasn't uh it wasn't right. anything like that and it's and it's nice to see and and obviously the city does those things when they know that um there's money coming in, and and people that develop uh, develop uh, areas of the city also contribute funds to have those parks um, refurbished. If my understanding is correct, too, so you got to. Well, go- they do. However, the Duran Neighborhood Association fought for that fund for the funds to fix up. That okay, park. all right. Um, a lot of the the development charges um, they go to other neighborhoods for. Or other green space, right? Okay, they don't necessarily stay in the same neighborhood. That's in that you know that's a, an in- interesting point and enlightening uh, for certain. Um, that's that's important to note that <clears throat> people um, that live in the neighborhood got off got off their butts and <clears throat> kind of fought for it, right? And that's yes, what that's well, you have to. Well, that's what makes neighborhoods strong. It, it it would be great if there it would be great if there were more. The Duran Neighborhood Association type associations in other areas of the city. I know there are some, um, mm-hmm. but this is the kind of thing that that you need to bring a cohesive vision and voice uh, to the table and get the people that are making the decisions to listen to you. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we'll see where the Connolly goes. I'm, I, you know, today's today, and I know uh, Councillor Farr will be dialing the phone and. And uh, hitting the bricks and talking to people, and you know that's where it mm-hmm. starts, right? They got to get out there and talk to people. And I have a feeling some uh, entrepreneurial developer will come in and see this as a great opportunity and say, "Hey, well, you know what? They couldn't manage it business wise. No problem. We'll come in and and do something with it because uh, this is going to be great." I I just think that uh, 
this may be um, uh, a cloud with a silver lining in the end. Yes. We hope you're right, Jamie. All right. Francis Murray, right. Uh, Duran Neighborhood Association. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to spend the next uh, 25 minutes or so talking a little business. Um, Sears, of course, has been in the news an awful lot uh, lately with uh, news of closing stores and cutting approximately 2,900 jobs and um, not paying severance and, you know, taking away people's benefits. And, man, it's... um, it's a mess for Sears uh, in a PR sense. And joining us on the line is uh, he is uh, so uh, graciously able to do uh, with us here is Marvin Ryder, business professor in the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, good to have you back on. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here, Jamie. Thank you. Um, so Sears uh, is uh, going to be asking uh, the court in Ontario, uh, I think today, right, as to whether or not they can start their liquidation process. That may be the only good thing for consumers coming out of this is they might get a bargain. So, Jamie, let, uh, let me tell you that they've actually had the hearing, and I'll tell you mm. the results in just a moment. Okay. What, what's becoming apparent is Sears' strategy through all this. To contrast it to Target, Target got into trouble in Canada and said, you know what, this market is too hard to crack, so we're packing up stakes and we're heading home, and they closed all of their stores across Canada. Sears has been in some tough going, but they believe, their management believes, that they have found some kind of a formula that might allow it to survive. But they can't have all of the stores survive. So what they're going to try to do is is kind of like, you know, cutting off your legs to save the rest of the body. They're closing 59 of these stores, yes, laying off 2,900 people. Now, how do you close these stores? Well, they don't want to handle the merchandise in those stores, so they want to have a liquidation sale, but only in those 59 stores. So take, for instance, the Sears in Lime Ridge Mall. It is not affected by this, so it will be business as usual, and you won't notice any disruption. In Ancaster, there's a Sears, and it is slated for closure, and that's where this uh, sale is going to begin. So they went to court today. They said they really want to start it this weekend, July 21st, and the judge agreed, and they've given them the green light. Okay, so uh, get ready to go into uh, the Sears store and, I guess, uh, pick over the... The remaining right. inventory, right? right? So all the inventory is going to be sold as is. Yeah. They're, they've hired the same people that helped liquidate the Target stores to deal with these 59. Now, you might wonder, when they went to the judge today, they said the judge, it was critical, critical to start the sale this weekend. And you might say to yourself, well, what, what was so special about this weekend? You know this, Jamie, but I'm not mm. sure your listeners do. After the Christmas selling season, what's the second biggest retail season in Canada? Yeah, no, ex- exactly. That's uh, what that would be. What Valentine's Day? Yeah, no, back to school. <laughs> back to school. So this is the back to school time. I know the kids just nicely got out of school, but starting at the end of July, running through August and in early September, back to school. This is a great chance for Sears in those fifty nine stores to move an awful lot of merchandise in a short period of time. That's why they didn't really want to delay. So we're going to have this odd circumstance. There are going to be some Sears, and, and I wouldn't blame the average consumer, and I expect you'll see stories about this. I went to this Sears expecting big deals, and there were no big deals. Mm. But if I go to that Sears, I'm going to get great deals. One other quick note, in this liquidation, they are not allowed to use the word liquidation. 
They can say store closing, uh, you know, all merchandise might go, but Sears does not want those 59 stores to use the words liquidation, bankruptcy, any of those sorts of things. And why? Because they want to keep the other ones at least as pristine as they can, tarnished <laughs> as least as they can. That's has, the strategy. Has anybody told the people around the table at Sears that, that the name brand in Canada is now is tarnished? Yes. Well, like, it's the old story of good luck with this strategy. Yeah, no kidding. And 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 just on that topic, just quickly, am I the only one who noticed that? Um, I was. It was the Sears at Mapleview Mall that I noticed originally with the new uh, branding and imaging um, stuff on it, new colors, right. and this WTS thing. What the Sears? Mm-hmm. And I thought. I, I wanted to, in my mind, revert back to the WTF when I looked at that, <laughs> thinking, what were they thinking? What agency uh, worked on that, and who made the decision that what the Sears was a good thing? I don't know, man. It's it's they're really they seem to be really flailing. Well, they do, and yet on the other hand, they don't. So if we take the renovated store in Maple View, the renovated store in Lime Ridge, and there are some other stores in the Greater Toronto area that were renovated. We'll call them the new Sears stores. In those stores, only those stores, year over year sales are up three percent. Now I know three percent mm. isn't anything to get all crazy about, but in a store that had been seeing their sales shrinking. Up is a good thing. So this is the idea. They want to lose the 59 where they feel they had no hope of turning it around and then deploy this new strategy in the other remaining, I'm going to say roughly 150 stores, and they believe they've got a strategy to go forward. Now, I know what exactly what you're saying. It, it struck me a little odd and, and, uh, and not necessarily the best strategy I've ever seen, but it's not really important whether you and I think it's great. It's whether the consumers respond. And so far... In those stores where they've deployed it, sales are actually up. Well, and I, you know, there's an old adage too in business: if they're if they're going that way, let's go the other way. Uh, and when and what I'm thinking of when I say that is Sears compared to say Hudson's Bay, right? Mm. And who would be there considered their main competitors in in Canada, right? In, in, as far as a big department store anchor tenant in a mall, that kind of thing. Yeah, the, the problem Sears has in general is that they're stuck in the middle. So somebody like the Bay, like Holt Renfrew, they've gone into the upper echelons. Uh, the Dollarama, Walmart, they've gone into the lower echelons, and that leaves you the middle. But it turns out there isn't a lot of space there in the middle. In the United States, you have many people fighting for that. J.C. Penney, Kmart, Sears, uh, also some Walmart in there, and Target, uh, even Kohl's. And there's just not enough room for them. Now, there is some space up here. So the other thing I think we're going to see happen, and this is a story you'll see this fall, once those 59 stores have been liquidated, and that's supposed to wrap up the Thanksgiving weekend. Right after Thanksgiving, those 59 stores will be closed. And then I would not be surprised if you hear a story that Kohl's, the American retailer, wants to try a little something in Canada. Hmm. And they may take a sniff around a few of these locations. Won't take all 59, but they might put their toe in the Canadian water. That's very interesting. You heard it here uh, first. That's excellent. That's very, very interesting indeed. Um, one last thing on Sears, and then uh, we'll take a break, and I'll ask you to hang on, uh, and we can come back and talk about Netflix. But one last thing about Sears, again, the the, the outrage over... You know, big bonuses being paid to executives in the face of uh, employees getting no severance and so on and so forth. Uh, That news is days old. Um, But, you know, it just seems patently, 
patently wrong. But again, I suppose, Marvin, the laws of the land allow this to happen, and there's really nothing we can do about it until we change the laws. Well, and I'm not, I'm not even sure it's about changing the laws. Uh, what, what these executives are getting are not truly what I would call bonuses for performance. They're what's called a retention bonus. During a difficult economic time, uh, it's not unusual, especially if you are a senior person in the organization, to say, well, I don't know if I've got a future here. I'm going to start scouting around for a job at some place that looks a little more secure. Mm-hmm. And everyone understands that. But what the company says is, look, for the next six months, we really don't have the time to go out and start replacing a controller, a chief financial officer, even a CEO. That, that would distract us from the task at hand. So to incentivize you to stay, and yes, we realize at the end of this, you may still be out of a job. We're going to pay you what's called a retention bonus. You don't get it all up front. It's yeah. kind of like a golden handcuff, if you will. You get a little bit here and a little bit there, and if you stay right to the very end, that's when you get the bonus. I was involved once with the merger of two small credit unions. At the end of it, we weren't going to need two fill-in-the-blanks, you know, two chief financial officers, what have you, but we right. needed them up until the day of the merger. So we paid these retention bonuses, and I understand that if you're a person on the floor, you say, well, that doesn't feel very fair. The problem is that, unfortunately, you're more replaceable. These other people are in key positions that are harder to replace, and that's why you pay them. It sounds like a lot of money, $9.2 million in total, especially when you hear people who are not getting severances. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if Sears eventually finds some way to deal with that issue. They're not, they want to stay in business. They've got to keep some publicity but, or some good public relations. But in the meantime, this does actually make some sense for a company in this time. All right. Marvin Ryder, I'll get you to hang on if you'd be so kind. And uh, what we'll do is uh, take a short break here and come back on the other side and uh, have another discussion with uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at McMaster University, about Netflix. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. My guest is Marvin Ryder, a business professor in the DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Uh, Again, Marvin, thanks for uh, taking the time to spend with us here this afternoon. Happy to help, Jamie. Um, Netflix. Uh, we talked about Sears in our last segment. We're going to talk about Netflix now. And the question is, can Netflix business model uh, survive? I'm, I'm a big fan of Netflix. I, I, I use it all the time. In fact, it's become almost my, my number one go-to place for, for screen content, for TV content, if you will. What's, what's the concern here? Right. So uh, let, me, let me start you off with a few bit of trivia facts that you can share with other people. Uh, it was just about three months ago that Netflix crossed a key milestone, 100 million accounts globally for Netflix and growth uh, at a good healthy pace, so double-digit growth year over year. Wow. So that's great. However, at the same time, in the most recent quarter, Netflix lost 618 million U.S. dollars. That's almost a billion Canadian, uh, to make the joke. Uh, and wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Their, their volume is up, the number of subscribers are up, but why are their revenues down? Well, their business model, and this is why people question this word about sustainability, has a two-pronged approach. The prong that you know and love, and in fact most of the 100 million subscribers love, is the streaming service so that I can get movies, television shows, stream them to my home commercial-free for a fairly low fee every month. They do have a couple of different tiers, but for roughly, say, $10, $15 a month, I get access to content. Right. That part of the model is highly sustainable, and nobody's questioning it. What they are questioning is the second half of the model, which is that not only do they stream other people's content, but they create their own. Last year, uh, Netflix was responsible for something like um, 
30 different uh, scripted uh, television series only available through Netflix. They spent about $7 billion making that content, whether it's House of Cards or Orange is the New Black. It's award-winning television. They get nominated for a lot of Emmy Awards. They actually produced more scripted content last year than any of the major television networks in the United States, NBC, CBS, or ABC. But if you're losing $600 million a quarter and you're spending $6 billion on the programming, that's the question. Is that sustainable? Yes, here's the good news. You've had hits with the stuff you've created. On the other hand, as you know with television, uh, just because I create a series doesn't mean it's going to be a hit. Uh, if they right. spent this 6 to $7 billion and half the shows nobody wanted to watch, then you could really say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And that's what's raised the question marks. Nothing about the delivery of the content, but it's creating their own content. Is that really sustainable? It's very expensive, obviously, as you point out. And um, but and it's and it, they're in a bit of a catch twenty two in a sense because it's that original content that's really driving. I think they're their subscriber base because of the talk. There's talk on social media. There's talk everywhere about, oh, have you seen the latest, you know, House of Cards on, on Netflix? Have you seen the latest uh, this series or that series? And and people go and 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 look at these things and, and usually binge watch them, you know, watch an entire season of one show uh, in an, uh, on a Sunday afternoon when it's raining, you know, that kind of thing. And so there's so much to to this thing in terms of consumer behavior, right? But this is really, again, what raises the question on sustainability. Uh, With the networks, with network television, CTV, NBC, what have you, they release one show a week. And that keeps your eyeballs focused for weeks and weeks and weeks. For instance, ABC uh, had a television series starring Kiefer Sutherland called... um, designated survivor right and it was a 23 weeks i think was the total series start to finish but it was spread out it started in the fall it ended in may and it really kept people involved you're absolutely right netflix can produce a series like house of cards maybe 10 episodes 12 episodes release them on friday you've watched them all by Sunday night and then you're saying bring me more bring me more bring me more well it costs a lot of money to do that and here's the other funny part about this. When they decided to up the ante and create their own content, they've now actually changed the game. You and I might say, well, this is pretty easy. If you're spending $6 billion, just cut it back to $3 billion, Cut the number of fresh content in half. It'll all be fine, except some of your other competitors in this business are also producing content. One of those are Amazon. Amazon, who seems to want to control the world, has their finger in almost every pie. They're producing content. Their big show that they had, the comedy Transparent, starring Jeffrey Tambor, has won an Emmy Award each of the last two seasons, probably will win a third this fall when they do it. So if you cut back and your competitors maintain, well, as you point out, it's a cutthroat world, suddenly you're losing your edge. So this is why, again, this concern of sustainability, you may be forced to have to continue spending 6 to $7 billion a year on programming and continue to lose money. Otherwise, you'll lose even more as the eyeballs go away. Well, we've got to run here. We're right out of time. But the other consideration is, you know, raise the subscription rates a little bit to offset some of those costs. If you've already proven you can do great content, then a lot of people would probably be willing to pay a little bit more money uh, knowing that you've already proven yourself. But that's maybe a conversation for another time, Marvin. All right. Marvin Ryder, uh, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. The battles that go on 
between big beer and little beer have been going on for uh, a very, very long time. And it seems like uh, the more of these craft breweries that, that prop up or crop up, uh, the more the big boys want to come in and either buy them out and make the the owners of those craft breweries rich or, as we're starting to hear, play little games <clears throat> and try to control the market by getting their hands on things like social media platforms where people talk about beer and having having that control. Uh, there's a lot of concerns about uh uh, the games that are being played. And joining us on the line to uh, talk about this a little bit today is Dan Malik. He's a health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, The Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing? Good. Can I say that you're, like, are you a beer professor? Because <laughs> yeah. I want that job. <laughs> yeah. no, I was talking to a few students today who said the exact same thing. He's... No, not, not a beer professor so much, but... I talk about it a lot. I make it as boring as possible, but I'll do my best not to do that for you. I don't know how beer can be boring, but anyway, I'll I'll, I'll let you know at the end of this interview whether I thought you were boring. So, okay. <laughs> um, so let's get into this a little bit. Uh, small independent brewers say that uh, big beer companies are stepping up a campaign to to buy craft breweries and are employing other tactics that make it difficult for beer drinkers to tell if the suds they're quaffing are actually local. First off, Dan, does it matter whether they're local or not as long as they taste good? Well, I guess I think what you just said was the heart of the matter is depends on what you're in it for. I mean, if it, if you just want good tasting beer, it might be fine. But um, one of the reasons we have this market is because there were innovators out there who were willing to put their neck out to um, to risk, uh, you know, not selling enough to, to risk you know, financial ruin to to create new beer, to, to, to build this market, right, to, to build the industry. So um, the beer may taste the same, but when you have a whole bunch of um, big, the big breweries taking over, it might cut into the impetus for innovation. On the other side, um, some of the brewers who were major players in the craft beer uh, market, like, say, uh, Mill Street, for example, or even uh, Sleeman's, they profit they benefited from being bought up you know they they made money out of um out of their their business and maybe they can go off and innovate and make beer um, you know open new craft beer or uh, innovate in new businesses so so if you're just looking for good beer it might not be a big problem but if you look at it as a sort of an ecosystem of of beer innovation it might be because the the big brewers aren't interested in innovating themselves they're interested in buying up other people's innovations. Yeah, and I think that um, the culture, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, the culture, Dan, that goes along with beer um, kind of rails against that idea that, you know, beer drinkers like to think that they're sophisticated um, about their brew. And I think there's a romance uh, in the idea that they're sipping something that's made in very small batches by a crafts uh, brew person, um, that the recipe is something that's unique. Um, we see that happen in local pubs all over the UK, and that's one of the things that attracts uh, not only tourists but the locals to, to doing that. There's the, the, it, the, the local flavor, the local build of the brew 
is important to us at some emotional level, is it not? Um, absolutely. Uh, but I think at the same time, uh, the local nature, um, some early, uh, say, microbreweries and brew pubs tended to, at least from, from the ones I was familiar with early on, tended to sort of, ex- I can't say exploit, but extol that sort of localness. So they would buy locally uh, sourced food as well, and they would not necessarily go organic, but they would try to sort of embed themselves in that. But as the craft beer industry has expanded, um, each craft brewer is trying to find its own niche, right? So you might get some that are really market-centered and trying to get some kind of innovative, shiny, technologically advanced kind of look, some that might go to that rustic old look and things like that, right? So so there's that kind of differentiation that goes on within um, craft beer, but definitely there's that sense of it's, it's, um, it's local. Remember, if it's local, it's fresh. It hasn't traveled across the country to get to you. It hasn't traveled across the province. Um, it may have been finished yesterday, right? So there's, there's that kind of element that does actually affect the beer drinking taste. So going back to your first question, it can affect it. Um, there's some great craft beer in BC that by the time it gets here, it's just Honestly, it's just not as good because right. of, the, of, the, of the distance it's traveled. Yeah, and that's not hard to believe uh, at all. What about this idea that, that big beer is going around trying to squish little beer by, you know, uh, buying hops fields and, you know, controlling social media and, and doing all these kind of spy versus spy type moves, these nefarious, deceitful, underhanded types of things? Well, um, before I answer that, I'll just say <laughs> that I'm very much a craft beer supporter. But we have to remember at the same time that this is business. And so if business can corner a market in something, they will, whether it's craft beer, whether it's, um, you know, I don't know, um, you know, instant soup. It doesn't matter. They'll, they'll try yeah. to, try to um, uh, corner the market. So um, buying up these, uh, from a craft brewer's perspective, buying up hop fields and and cornering the market on there was a, a few years ago there was a, a decline in a, a particular hop called Simcoe, and the, the Simcoe farmers were actually selling it to the big brewers because I think it was Simcoe or there was a hop blight um, in any case, and they were selling it to the big brewers because they were going to pay more money for it, right? So part of that happens. So if you're a big brewer and you want to make sure you have your supplies, it's, you know, vertical integration, you want to. Um, control that. From the craft beer side, it's like, hey, man, you're not letting us make our beer, but their view is also we're trying to make sure we have um, enough for our product, right? Yeah. Um, there's that. There is, of course, always, uh, you know, within marketing, I think one of the issues has been um, the website Rate Beer has been at least partly owned by a brewer now, uh, a, a big brewing multinational. And so the question is, do they, you know, are they going to give, uh, are they going to continue to f- present just the user's reviews of beer, or are they going to start to selectively remove bad reviews of, say, their own products? And right. That, you know, that, that can, that's the danger we face when we go onto the Internet with any information we, we get. Right? Sure. Dan Mellick is my guest, a health sciences professor at Brock University and author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition. Uh, Ontario, we're just calling him the beer professor, and so that's that's what you'll be known as from now on when you appear on this program, whether you like it or not. Uh, <laughs> Dan, Dan, when we when we talk about um, uh, entrepreneurs who would 
step out and stick their necks out and put their, you know, uh, fortunes at risk or their life savings at risk, let's say, to start a craft brewery. Um, I'm wondering if there's two types. I'm wondering if there's the types that have the great idea, have the great recipes, know that they're 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 onto something here, and go forward and take the risk with the hope that they'll be bought up by uh, the big breweries, similar to what a lot of people in the tech world do, young people do in the tech world with apps and so on and so forth, versus the craft brewers that get into it solely and purely for the love of of the brew and and they're not interested at all in being uh, taken over they're interested in digging in their heels and being what they are yeah there's probably a lot of both of those um i know a lot of home brewers who decide to move into becoming a professional brewer and some of them they get into home brewing because they love brewing but when they get into professional suddenly you've got investment in here and you've got to you know recoup your 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 costs and, and profit and and you know have have money to live and stuff like that so it, it may be that there's a little bit of both it's sort of like you know indie bands who decide yeah we're going to make have a big record get a big record label contract or indies who decide just to stay independent right all of that kind of there's that philosophy and it's, it's sort of some people say the lure of filthy lucre right yeah yeah so absolutely the, the ideology of it but what, the interesting thing about craft beer we have to remember along with what i said about you know the distance it travels um is that Brewing techniques can affect the beer, right? So if if I'm a certain things like fermentation, the flavors and the like, the substances that are created by yeast fermenting sugars um, changes depending upon the temperature. And as a um, a brewmaster once reminded me, the the within big business, the 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 key thing is getting your product to market, right? You want to get it out there, get it to market. So if you crank up the temperature a bit. It'll ferment faster. It'll it'll be finished faster. But what also happens with yeast is it needs to clean up its um, its, its its byproducts that it makes. If you send it to market too quickly, you'll end up with either off flavors or even some types of alcohols that aren't as good for you as, as others. Right. So there is that danger with the big business model that some processes will be um, lost. And so so when people think. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make a lot of money off this. It depends on, you know, they, from my view at least, they need to think about their product, right? Do, do I want my product that have my name on it to somehow be distorted in the future if they start to change the, the process? They don't have to change the recipe, but you change the temperature it's fermented at, you change how fast it gets into the bottle or into the keg and those sorts of things. So that, that gets into the complexity of beer chemistry, but it does have a significant impact on on the product, right, and on the, the drinker. Sure. Uh, how many craft brewers are, or microbrewers are there out there? Do we have an, a handle on how many are out there, how many are coming on every year, that kind of thing? I don't. I'm afraid I don't have the numbers. That's okay. Uh, it, it does seem that every time you walk into the uh, into the store, there's a whole bunch of new ones. Every every yeah. community seems to have one, and that actually is a historical, there's a historical precedent. It used to be every community would have at least one brewer, right? Right. Because yeah. Products couldn't um, travel very far. They, you know, with before refrigeration. Well, and that's why I like touring the pubs in you know the London, Liverpool, uh-huh. Edinburgh, uh, because you you get that. That's a guarantee. Um, yeah. You you step up to that that bar, and uh, you say, "Give me the you know, give me the local lager or the local ale or whatever." What's yeah. the difference between ale and lager anyway? For mo- a lot of people, don't know. 
It's the yeast. Okay. Um, first thing is the yeast. The second thing is the fermentation temperature. So ale is fermented uh, warmer than a, a lager, um, and ale yeast sits at the top, um, and then it falls, and lager yeast sits at the bottom. So ale yeast, because it's warmer, it has a lot more sort of complex flavors, esters and things like that. You'll get a lot of different flavors in that. Uh, lager is generally a cleaner flavor because it's colder. It takes longer to ferment, um, but it doesn't have a lot of complex flavors in it. It doesn't mean that lager can't be a very complex beer, but, but that's the main difference is the yeast. Yeah. Um, so where do we, when we're looking ahead to the future, I part of me is wondering, uh, Dan, if this isn't, if this just isn't a trend that's a little bit, that's been lengthened a little bit, that this trend will will come and go like, um, you know, like the beard trend that's currently happening. <laughs> I guess I came up with beard because it sounds like beer. But you know what I mean? And the association between craft brewers and hipsters, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but it, it could be, but I doubt it. Um, what, sometimes we, if, if we don't take a broad historical view, we sometimes think that what, you know, what was normal 20 years ago was tradition. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, especially in Canada, the very um, uh, limited beer selection was uh, an, an unusual feature of beer. So for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the, the big brewers have been consolidating. Um, they've been, you know, they've been um, reducing their lines of beer. They've been trying to um, appeal to the broadest population with cold beer that has very little flavor, right? So you want it fizzy. Coors Light, cold. yeah. There you go. You know, you can, and, and really, if you take take some of those ales, which should be drunk at like a 9, 10 degrees Celsius temperature, which isn't warm, but people say, oh, it's warm beer, um, you'll get very different flavors, and they won't be very good flavors if they're not brewed properly, right? But that's the temperature that traditionally they should be drunk at. Right. Um, so... Um, as that consolidation and homogenization of the product um, continued, more people were drinking it, but the variety was lost. So what we're seeing now is more people interested in variety. There are a few um, great sort of innovators and, and rebels in this field that started to expand the craft beer field. And people started to look at different flavors, flavors and different uh, um, ways of, of drinking different different types of products. And I think that that may be partly globalization in the sense that we can get, you know, great Belgian beers and, and different British beers and stuff like that. But it's also, uh, I think, getting back to what beer has been for thousands of years, which was a locally produced product with variety and people liked the variety. Yeah. Um, does it cost a lot to get going if you decide you want to be a microbrewer? Do you have any, any handle on that? Um, it, it, the startup costs can be uh, high um, because ramping up from, say, if you're a, if you're a home brewer into a sort of a 50, even a 50-gallon uh, system can be a lot. Um, the, the cost also in the product, so, but I can't give you numbers. I'm afraid I can't give That's you numbers. That's okay. But, but, but the cost also, also in the product is a problem because you can't just go, okay, well, if I'm going from five gallons to 50 gallons, I'll put 10 times as much stuff in here because it's, a, it's organic chemistry, right? So the, the complexity of the type of water you're using and the interactions and, and the volumes and the yeast moving around in the, in the volume is different. So it can be costly in that you might end up having to dump a bunch of um, batches before you get it right. There are some very intuitive craft brewers out there who can just walk in. I know some who can 
and walk in and say, this is our recipe today and brew brilliant beer. But a lot of times there is that trial and error. So people who do make that transition uh, do face that sort of um, challenge of how can I replicate something I did at five gallons at 50 or 100 or 500 gallons. Right. It's an interesting discussion, and I I would like to have another one, just like I would like to have another beer. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, Dan Mellick, uh, health sciences professor, Brock University, and author of the book, Try to Control Yourself. Very difficult for me. The book's called Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. Great insights today and uh, great chat. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. Thanks a lot. All, all the best. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.